<laughs> I really had to go to the ladies' room. Um, thank you, Donna, for uh, sharing this morning. I just want to first say that I am uh, also nervous, which is not anything unusual. Uh, the only thing I'm really grateful for is with you that what Alcoholics Anonymous has taught me a day at a time is that you just walk through the fear. That's all. You just walk through the fear. You share it, and you do it. And that's what you guys have taught me to do for 11 and a half very long years, to walk through... Thank you all kinds of fear. I'd like to thank the committee first for inviting me here this weekend. Um, I'm from the school of AA thinkers that believe any time I'm invited anywhere to speak in Alcoholics Anonymous, whether it's in a meeting of two or 2,000, that it's a privilege. And, uh, and I really believe that. I really believe that. Especially because I don't forget, and I haven't, uh, that it wasn't too long ago that nobody was inviting me anywhere. And if they made the mistake of inviting me once, you could, <laughs> you could rest assured that they didn't do it again. Uh, so uh, it always wells me up with emotion when I'm invited any place in this program. And so I thank you guys very much for asking me to participate this weekend. This weekend has been unbelievable for me. Uh, every single speaker that spoke touched a piece of my heart. Some I've had the opportunity to hear before, and most I haven't. But everyone, even in the workshop I attended, Someone touched me. But I have to tell you, the most poignant moment of all for me this entire weekend was last night when I also had the privilege to sit and hold hands with a young woman who, um, to me, was perhaps the most courageous person in here. She stood up and said, I had one day recovery. Uh, and see, it wasn't just about standing up saying that she had a day sober. Uh, unlike some people, I don't necessarily believe that the newcomer is the most important person in the room. I think they are important, but they're not the most important person. Um, but this woman was the most important to me last night because she had the courage that Alcoholics Anonymous talks about. The courage to stand up and see. I sat next to her and held her hand as she was shaking and, and, and didn't want to get up here. She didn't want to walk through that fear at first because she was afraid. But yet the healthier side of her said, you bet you get up there. And she stood up and uh, this meeting's for you. This meeting's for you. Um, for those of you that are relatively new to Alcoholics Anonymous, I just want to tell you that you are in for perhaps the most phenomenal experience of your lives. And you sit here, some of you, I'm sure, with your hands shaking and your palms sweating and you're saying, yeah, right, you know. Uh, perhaps yesterday was the worst day of your lives and you're saying, yeah, it's easy for you to say. Uh, and perhaps today it is, but uh, it wasn't before and I stuck around anyway. But if you become willing to do what's suggested in Alcoholics Anonymous, not what I suggest, not what individuals suggest, but what this program suggests, and it's in the books. I'm a book baby. I need to just let you know up front. I got sober through Alcoholics Anonymous and the 12 Steps. I didn't get sober through therapy. I didn't get sober through other organizations. I got sober right here by showing up a day at a time doing things I did not want to do because of what you taught me. And, uh, and that's how I've done this thing. Uh, and if you become willing to follow those true and tested ways of living, those of you that are somewhat new, you're going to find that your life is going to take a shape that you never, ever could have imagined. I mean, you never could have imagined. I stand before you this morning as a living example, a walking, talking miracle of what Alcoholics Anonymous can do in your life. But more than that, what Alcoholics Anonymous can enable you to do in your life what it can enable you to do for yourself on any given day. That's what my story is about. Nothing more, nothing less. It's a story of hope for those that are willing to listen to it. It's a story of hope. Somebody that got up from the gutter, thanks to you guys, pulled herself up, thanks to you guys and God, and learned how to make something of herself. That's what I stand before you this morning as, is that kind of example. I'm 38 years old, and... Um, I was born in Atlanta, Georgia. Um, <laughs> I don't remember the, the first six years of my life, however, not too clearly. But what does stand out about those very early years for me was that I always, and I mean always, felt different. I think more than anything else, the thing that characterizes how I felt as a child, how I felt as a teenager, how I felt as a young adult, it was always that I felt different. It was like that old... Adage being like a round peg in a square hole, never quite fitting, never quite finding my niche in life. My grandmother was the first 
or one of the first black women to be employed as a seamstress in Rich's department store years ago. And I remember she used to have a lot of patrons come over to the house and they'd um, come over for fittings and many of them would bring their children. And their children were very wonderful. I mean, they were kind. And they were not only very wealthy white women, but they were very wealthy black families too. Uh, children of physicians and dentists and teachers. Um, but you know, I knew early on that there was something different between them and me. And it wasn't only about the way they dressed or the houses they lived in or the cars they drove up to my grandmother's house in. There was something that I didn't have that they had and I knew from the beginning it made me different. It was, and I can't even really put my finger on it today, but it was just a sense, just an air. Perhaps it was that feeling of, of being okay with who they were. Maybe that was it, just simply that, that it came through, that they felt okay in their own skins and I didn't. And um, that made me real different. Uh, we're not even dealing with the external differences, but that made me different. And, you know, I've come to understand that that was the thing that, that really tripped me up most of the time throughout my life. It wasn't what was real outside. It was what I thought was real that got me in trouble. My family moved to uh, New York when I was six years old. And um, for the very first time in my life, I was to experience prejudice. Not so much racial prejudice, although I felt that too. But it was more the kind of prejudice that a little kid would feel when they moved from a very backward community to a much more sophisticated town. And although Atlanta is very cosmopolitan, a metropolitan hub today, at that time, it was run by Lester Maddox, and uh, it was not so chic to be a black person in New York in the 1950s. The only problem is I thought when I moved to New York, things were going to be different. I thought because it was New York, it was going to be very different. And see, I had the attitude that I had later on, that I always had, that if I physically moved myself from a place, whether it was a new town, a new country, a new job, a new boyfriend, a new girlfriend, a new anything, if I moved myself from that place and moved myself someone else without addressing the real problem, I always thought the problem was going to go away. But you see, it never did because I carried my baggage right along with me. And I was a young person. I was six years old. but. I had enough baggage then to, uh, to last a lifetime. And you know what? It would have lasted a lifetime had you guys not interrupted that sickness with Alcoholics Anonymous. A week ago, there was a television movie called Separate But Equal. I was on, and it was awesome. It was awesome for a lot of different reasons. But one of the most um, significant scenes for me was when they were trying to figure out why black kids, or, or the effect, the impact of racism on, on young black kids. And... There was this little black boy and this little black girl, and they were given dolls. They had a black, doll, a black boy doll and a white boy doll and a black girl doll and a white girl doll. And this little boy, they asked him something like, uh, who's the, pick the bad doll out. And he picked out the black boy doll. And then they said to the little girl, the little black girl, pick out the ugly doll. And she picked out that little black girl. And it was that kind of pain that I felt every day of my life. I brought that pain with me into to everything I did. The pain of not only being black, but just the, the pain of just hating myself so much that I eventually became willing to do anything to make that pain go away. I grew up with that pain, but you guys taught me years later how to eradicate it. And you taught me that it had to come from the inside. It wasn't going to be about some man. It wasn't going to be about anything outside of me, although I was taught that. But you taught me differently taught me that wasn't the way it was going to be if I was to get healthier. I was always um, a person trying to find some kind of escape, and I guess it wasn't really unusual. If there was anybody looking at me as a small child, they probably knew that I'd try to find something that was going to make this excruciating pain go away. And for me, the earliest escape in my life was literature and the silver screen. My mother's a librarian, and thank God she was, because it was fabulous for me. Uh, we had books all over my house, reams and reams and reams of books. In every room, there were books everywhere. And I'd take books down off the shelf, and I'd just sit in the corner, and I'd start to read. And I don't know if my mother thought I was just trying to be more educated, but what was really going on was when I started to read, the pain of my own reality just disappeared. You know, I was caught up in those binders, and I became whoever it was I was reading about. It was wonderful. And it was the same with the movies. My favorite women were Barbara Stanwyck, Susan Hayward, Betty Davis, and Joan Crawford. I mean, look out. Those are women that had a glass in one hand, a 
cigarette in the other. And guys, you know the story. They didn't take too much crap off anybody. And that's what I needed, you know. That's how big my hole was inside, and I needed something like that just to grab a hold of. Something to grab a hold of. And, you know, I've heard in the rooms, guys, counterparts, that talk about Bogey and George Raft, uh, you know, those kind of tough guys. Well, I needed that kind of tough girl image. Um, just something to make me feel okay about me. And I'll tell you, for a long time, the books and the movies worked. They managed to take me away from growing up in the South Bronx, uh, away from the pain of growing up this poor little black kid, um, away from the pain of my own reality, whatever that may have been at the time. And then it stopped working. Those things just stopped working. Instead of, make, instead of making me feel better about what was going on, because I kind of blocked it out, it started to illuminate the problem. It started to make it perfectly clear that where I was was exactly where I was going to be. I was this poor little black kid in the South Bronx, hopeless, and, and, and didn't have a clue about what was going on, and wasn't going anywhere else. That this was my lot in life, period, and I might as well accept it. And I'll tell you, that's pretty heavy to, to force some kid to accept, and I didn't. I chose not to. And it was at the age of 14 that I got introduced to the wonderful world of drugs. Um, <laughs> there's a, a line that I hear in, in the rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous, which, which is so appropriate, better living through chemistry. <laughs> and that's what it was. That's what I engaged in every day of my life, better living through chemistry. A day at a time of God willing, in July, I would have been sober as long as I drank. I'll be sober 12 years if I don't pick up and if I don't die. And I drank and used for 12 years. Um, and, uh, you know, it, it didn't come yet, though. <laughs> so um, That's why I always say, if God willing, I don't, uh, my, I don't announce it before. Um, I, uh, I went to places in my drinking that I would have never, ever gone to had I not been drunk or wasted. Had I not been the kind of drunken whore that I became through perpetual use, or misuse of chemicals, I would have never, ever gone. I would have never done it. I just would have never done it. You know, had I known what was in store for me short of Alcoholics Anonymous, I mean short of Alcoholics Anonymous, had I known everything that I was going to do over the next few years, I would have never picked up my first drink or drug. And that's for me, guys. I would have never done it because the places I went, no animal should have ever had to go. No animal. I did things that for a very, very long time in this program I couldn't forgive myself for. For a long time. Because I had become one of those women that were so vile and so wretched. I had become willing, because of my addictions, to do anything for a drug or a drink. Anything. It didn't matter. Anything for a drug or a drink. And more importantly, I realized that I was willing to do anything just to be loved. You know, it was all that stuff kind of wrapped up in one. I needed the drink and the drug, but I also needed attention. You know, I, and I just wanted it so badly that I became willing to compromise myself on a day-to-day -day basis to the point that I didn't even know I was compromising myself. I did things that I just thought became second nature, and they did. For me, they did become second nature because that's what I had done. That's where alcohol and drugs had taken me. There was a, a television movie about five years ago called The Barbara Hutton Story, and one of the parts out of that movie that was so powerful for me is she kept saying how her grandfather, Mr. Woolworth, over and over and over again promised her the magic. He said that if she was a good little girl, she was going to one day find the magic. And this woman, her lifestyle was different from mine. She was much wealthier, but she did the same stuff. She searched everywhere for the magic everywhere and you know she died looking for that magic still she never found it i was luckier i found you guys first alcoholism took away took away every single thing i thought was important it took away my family it took away the few friends i had left the few people that could tolerate my behavior even at the end they could no longer do that it took away everything i thought was important by the end took away the use of a limb, took away whatever sanity I had, and then it dug deep down in my gut and took away the last vestige of my self-respect. It took away it all. There were times when I'd come home from doing whatever it was I had to do out in the streets, and I'd take showers, and I'd 
scrub myself sometimes, and I know there are a few of you women in here that understand what I'm about to say. Maybe not all of you, because everybody didn't drink the same. But I'm sure there's some of you that know what I'm talking about. Why is it coming in ice to scrub my body? Because I thought that the dirt I was trying to get off was that dirt on the outside. And I'm going to tell you guys, sometimes I'd hurt myself so badly, I would just scrub and scrub, and I'd get abrasions on my skin trying to get that dirt off. But you know, it wouldn't come off. It wouldn't come off because the dirt that I was trying to take away with soap and water and pretty clothes and fragrance was attached to the inside. It was that soul sickness. It was the kind that says when you lie down with scum, that's what you yourself become. You know, the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous talks about seeking out sordid companions. Well, I had become one of those sordid companions due to alcoholism. That's where it had taken me. And, you know, I never, ever thought I'd be able to leave that place. I never thought. When I got sober in the rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous, when I used to come in and see pretty faces, as I see this morning, you know, women that, that are healthy and lovely, I never thought that was anything I'd ever, ever get. And, you know, perhaps I would not have gotten it had I been willing to work less on my recovery. But I was willing to work hard, which is why I got it. And I work hard every day because I don't want to lose it. In 1978, I clearly knew that there was something wrong with my life, and I didn't know what it was. I was uh, in such a state of denial that uh, I really believed it was something outside of me, and I really believed that. I started to see a therapist, and it was the only time in my life, I must say, that I have chosen to go to therapy. I, again, I got sober through Alcoholics Anonymous. But it was at that time I did go to a therapist because I thought it was something wrong with my brain. And indeed it was, but that wasn't the only thing. And uh, she suggested to me that I had an allergy to alcohol. Now, when you say that to an alcoholic steeped in denial, there's sort of only one avenue they can take. At least I kind of think that. Uh, and I did what any self-respecting alcoholic would do. <laughs> you got it. I, I ran off and I got this allergy test, you know. <laughs> I mean, it's so sick. I don't even believe it sometimes. And I don't know if they still do it the same way today, but it used to be like a huge head with four little needles, and they'd prick you to see if you were allergic to anything. And I wasn't. And, uh, and uh, all that did was gave me more of a license to continue behaving in the inappropriate way I had behaved for so many years. For so many years. I um, consented to go to... Meetings of Alcoholics Anonymous, this was in 1978, but I really didn't want to be there because not unlike perhaps some of you, I wanted to do it my own way. And I was still in such denial then that I didn't even think I had a problem with alcohol. See, it didn't matter that I was coming to in the morning with people that I didn't even know. It didn't matter that I was passing out at night, not knowing where the hell I was. It didn't matter that I would leave home with certain articles of clothing and never return with all of them. You know, it didn't matter that I was smuggling booze in my purse no matter where I went. But I couldn't go without a drink. I was only 25 at the time, and I couldn't go without a drink. You see, my conception of an alcoholic was, was of course, Susan Hayward and I'll Cry Tomorrow. I mean, where, well, first, if it, if it was even a woman, it was Susan Hayward, where she was eating out of the garbage can, you know, digging in the garbage can. But mainly, I thought an alcoholic was that old man on the Bowery with his overcoat and the bottle in the back of his pocket. That was an alcoholic to me. It wasn't me. I was living on the east side of Manhattan. There's no way I could have been an alcoholic. Again, it didn't matter that I was coming to in Central Park. Didn't matter that. Didn't matter that they sometimes not so politely invited me out of restaurants that I had passed out in in the food. That didn't seem to connect with the fact that perhaps I had a problem with alcohol. <laughs> you know, it's like some... I'm so grateful we have a whole pamphlet called A Merry-Go-Round of Denial because that's exactly what it's about, a disease of denial. And I was clearly one of those afflicted with it, you know. Um, I um, took what I endearingly like to call today a, a geographic, as we call in Alcoholics Anonymous, and I moved from what I thought was the problem area, New York, to Las Vegas, Nevada. <laughs> Decadence, USA. 
And uh, I got sober there, and people have said to me, how in the world could you have gotten sober in Vegas? And I can just tell you guys today that when you become willing, or when some power greater than you thinks it's the time for you to get sober, doesn't matter whether you're in Hoboken, New Jersey, or Duluth, or Las Vegas, Nevada, uh, you'll get sober. Um, and uh, that's where I eventually came in, but not yet. I uh, moved out to Vegas like a lot of people. I moved out number one because, again, New York was my problem. And, it, and as I had said before, that was always my pattern, thinking if I physically moved from one place to another, the problem was going to go away. And it might have gone away had I been working on the, the main issues, the stuff inside. But I never addressed that. I was so busy putting the finger, pointing the finger at you guys. And New York was, was the primary target. New York created my problems. It was the cause of everything that was wrong in my life. And so I moved out to Vegas looking for the pot of gold. And it took nine months before a God that I did not even believe in said, enough is enough that simple just enough is enough I got hit by a car in a blackout in uh, June of 1979 and uh, to date I don't even remember what happened uh, the last thing I recall was I was sitting in a discotheque it used to be there it was the brewery and um, <laughs> you remember it too huh and the next thing I recall was the next morning it was a Saturday I came to in Desert Springs Hospital with my entire body in traction and my leg was in a cast. And um, I was still pointing the finger. It wasn't my fault. Somebody hit me, you know. <laughs> the doctors never thought that I was going to live, so I'm told. And then they never thought I'd ever walk again because they found me, the cops, I'm, I'm told, found me in the street on Paradise Road in a direction opposite from my house. And when they found me, my leg came up behind my head and the bone had come straight through and like today I have a, a 10 inch scar on my leg as a constant reminder of, of the good old days you know if I ever should forget um, I've had people ask me in recovery have I ever considered cosmetic surgery because it really is an ugly scar but you know for the most part I don't even know it's there uh, and no I haven't to date considered cosmetic surgery because you know every time I look at my leg it makes me remember where I came from Lest I ever forget that just because I'm 11 and a half years sober, that I don't need to go to meetings, that I don't need to, uh, that maybe I don't have time to do service, that if a sponsee calls me, you know, I may feel like I don't need to respond. If I ever get too cocky in Alcoholics Anonymous and think I don't need to do the things that you guys have taught me, if I get off that program of rigorous honesty, you know, if I think today perhaps it's acceptable that I should sleep with someone else's husband, you know, any of those, for me, unacceptable things that I used to do all the time, when I get to the point maybe when I'm thinking those things are okay, I'm, in, I'm going in the wrong direction. And that could easily happen when you get sober a while. You know, it's easy to do. And so looking at my leg, among other things, reminds me that uh, I can't let up on this program. I cannot let up on this program of rigorous honesty and hard work. The Big Book of Alcoholics Anonymous tells us that we are people that cannot rest on our laurels. That what we have is a daily reprieve contingent on the maintenance of our spiritual condition. I believe that. I don't know about you, but I've come to really believe that. Because, see, I know what happens when I get too far off the beam for just one day. And uh, I don't want to be in that place again. I don't ever want to be back there again. In July of 1979, I crawled into the rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous for what I hope was the last time, the last first meeting in Vegas. And um, I'd like to tell you that I came in here and embraced this program with open arms. But the reality is I probably came in like some of you. Um, I came in with a real attitudinal problem. I came in and I sat in the back, what I like to call the inventory section. And I did just that. Make no mistake about it. I did just that. I came in with a real bad attitude. I thought the world owed me something, and I was out to get it any way I could. I came in, and I took up three seats. I had crutches, so I had one for my body, one for my leg, and one for my crutches. And I dared you to say something to me. I mean, I dared you to. I sort of sat back, 
and just kind of dared you to make my day. And very few people could. Very few people could. I sat on the side of the room with the folks that said, Honey, all you have to do is take up a seat and you'll get this thing through osmosis. (laughs) Well, I don't even know what that word meant, but by the time I found out, I loved it. It was music to my ears because I have always been a lazy person. I'm not today, I might tell you, quite honestly. I've worked through that. But I was always a lazy person. And I wanted to do as little work as I possibly could to get as much benefit. And uh, it was no different when I came in here. I just sat back. I wanted to play with the boys, you know. I wanted to do everything they said don't do. And uh, then people started, I guess they noticed that very early on. It didn't take a long time. And people started suggesting that I talk to this woman. <laughs> as a sponsor. And I I um, kind of didn't like that necessarily. But when I found out who she was, I really didn't like it. Because I thought they suggested I go to her as a sponsor because she was black. And I resented the fact that they thought just because I was black, I needed a black sponsor. Well, what it really was, guys, it wasn't that. It had nothing to do with color. It had to do with my bad attitude. <laughs> Louise was the only person in Vegas that... um could handle someone like me and everybody but me knew it and uh, and I disliked her for a long time this was a woman I disliked for a very long time I want you to know Louise was um, she was mean she was, uh, all she ever talked about was action gratitude service and God Things that not only I didn't know about, but I wasn't all that interested in finding out about them. That wasn't the kind of life I led, you know. Service. The only service I knew was the service you could do for me, you know. Action where we just didn't even consider doing any work. Um, um, None of that stuff mattered. God was not a part of my life at the time. None of it mattered. But maybe the healthier side of me, this tiny, tiny part of me, Maybe was crying for help. And maybe that's why I chose to, um, to approach this woman. And I should have known I was in trouble in the beginning. I was 30 days sober when I asked her to be my sponsor. I had attended a meeting that she used to attend. It was a meeting called Rule 62. Don't take yourself too seriously. It was started by one of her sponsees. And uh, another one of her sponsees I had gone up to at the beginning of the meeting. And I said, would you ask Louise if she would be my sponsor, please? <laughs> If there's anybody here that knows Louise, and I know there are some of you, then you know that didn't go over too well with her. She sent back a message, have her come to me. And I was petrified. But I should have known this is the end. But I went to her, and I asked her if she'd be my sponsor. And it was uh, the second best choice I've ever made in my whole life. The first was coming into this, this program. The second was choosing her. She, for me, was the most unbelievable role model, as she has been over the years. I believe that had I not had a sponsor like her, I would not be the woman that I am today. And I really believe that. I learned how to be a woman in Alcoholics Anonymous through women like her. And through a lot of women like you. I learned how to be a lady through the guys. But I learned how to be a woman from the women. And Louise used to say, if you want what we have, you do what we do. She said, if you keep doing what you've been doing, you're going to keep getting what you've been getting. She said, if you want self-esteem, you have to do esteemable acts. And see, I didn't understand all that because I didn't know about self-esteem. All I knew was that If I wanted something, I went after it. And there was always a man that would give it to me. Always. There was never a paucity in my life of men that were willing to to give me what I wanted. The problem was that the price was so damn high. I gave up my life. I gave up my soul so that I could have some man give me what I thought I wanted. That's since changed, ladies. That has since changed. And it's changed because of you. I used to think that 
The third step of Alcoholics Anonymous was only applicable to my drinking and using until I got Louise as a sponsor. And then I realized that it was really about being different. It was about applying it to my everyday way of living. When I used to go into meetings of Alcoholics Anonymous with see-through blouses on, because I, that's what I thought was acceptable, and the women would look at me and suggest I wear cotton, you know. I didn't understand how that was about changing my life. But it was. I came in sounding like a sailor. I had a mouth that was horrific. Every other word out of my mouth was a curse word. And I'll tell you today, you will not hear curses from me. That's for myself, for me only. I have learned that self-esteem comes from doing esteemable acts. And uh, it's been about doing a lot of things I didn't want to do. Um, I was taught how not to curse. See, I used to curse a lot because I hated myself so much so when I cursed, I would take the focus off of me, the person, and put it on what I was saying. You know? And since I was saying it in a way that was so raunchy, it didn't matter. You wouldn't look at me. And as I got healthier in Alcoholics Anonymous a day at a time, I realized if I wanted self-esteem, I had to do esteemable acts. And it started with those little things like maybe choosing another word instead of a four-letter word. And today I've made a conscious effort, and today it's not so hard. But it was in the beginning. It was very difficult when I first started it because that's all I ever knew. That's all I ever knew. It was the same thing with learning how not to open up my legs for everybody that said they wanted to be there. You know, I never knew how to say no. Yesterday at the workshop, they talked about that. That no was a complete sentence. I learned that in the rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous that if I wanted to be a woman that was worthy of respect, that it had to start here. That I could not expect you to give me what I wasn't giving to myself. You see, I constantly chose men that were inappropriate, and I chose women that were inappropriate. And then I'd always turn around and say, well, look at what they're doing to me. Well, you bet they were doing it to me because I let them do it to me. Number one, I had a big sign in my set that said, beat me, you know, hurt me. And so they did. They did, until I stopped it. Now, I say this to, to you this morning not to let you think that this was an easy process, because it hasn't been. This is 11 and a half years of hard, and I underscore the hard work. But it's been worth it, because today I'm a woman that I like and that I respect, you know, because I've earned that. You guys taught me, but I had to do the work. It was about this period for me when I was forced into... Um, taking an inventory for the very first time in my whole life. My own inventory, that is. And, uh, and it was perhaps the most painful experience ever next to actually coming into the rooms of Alcoholics Anonymous, surrendering to this program. Because, you see, I had spent my life blaming you guys. I blamed my mother. I blamed the men in my life. I blamed the war in Vietnam. I blamed, excuse me, everybody for what was happening to me. I never wanted to take any responsibility. You see, I may not have grown up in the best childhood, you know, with the best parents and the best time, whatever. But at some point, and this is what, thank God for Louise, she helped me recognize that at some point I had to take responsibility for my own actions. That I could, you know, I could keep blaming Mommy if I want, and I could be pissed off all I wanted. But the only person who was really going to suffer through all, that, through all that stuff was me. All the anger I was using to beat up on them, I needed to take a look at it. And for myself, and this is not to say that people are not supposed to be angry, so please don't misunderstand it. It's just for myself, I choose to work through that and not sit in anger. You see, I'm one of those people that believes the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous when it says anger is the luxury of more normal people. The dubious luxury. And they say dubious, which means questionable, which means that none of us perhaps need to be sitting in that stuff. But for me especially, for more normal folks, because you know... I didn't know how to express my anger appropriately when I got sober either, but I didn't express it so appropriately when I got sober. Because I, when I discovered it, it's like I wanted to wheel that sword at everyone. I wanted everybody to pay. Well, that wasn't the answer Louise taught me. She taught me that, number one, I had to recognize that generally when I was pissed off, it was because I wasn't getting what I wanted. Or somebody was taking something from me that I thought was mine. The fact is, she said, you needed to take a look and realize that the world didn't owe you something. You know... I mean, if I want to be pissed off today, there are a million and one reasons I could find. I, I live in New York, so, I mean, just walking down the street, people bump into you. They, I could have excuses, but I choose not to today. For me, 
because I choose not to live that way. I choose to start to look at why I'm not the victim. Because you see, when I'm really pissed off all the time, I'm giving myself a license to be a victim. That's my opinion only. I'm giving myself the license to be a victim. Because you see, if I'm pissed off at you, I'm not taking responsibility what I need to be looking at, which is really what's going on in me. That inventory helped me to look at that. That was the most painful thing that came out of that inventory for me, that I am not a victim. I'm going to tell you, some days it even doesn't swallow well today. You know? But it is the best thing that I've learned in this program. There's gum on this floor. I keep moving, but it, it's here. No, it's on my shoes. <laughs> um, but one of the, perhaps the most special thing that came out of that fourth step for me was my mother. I'm a woman that hated my mother all of my life. I hated this woman. When people would say, Francine, you look like Rose, I wanted to cringe. They tell me I sounded like her on the telephone and I wanted to die. I hated her so much because I blamed her for everything. See, it was my mother's fault that I was black, that I was black in a world that's racist, so I felt. It was my mother's fault that I was poor. It was my mother's fault that I sold my soul all over the place. It was my mother's fault that I drank and used. It was my mother's fault. For everything, ad infinitum, fill in the blanks. You know, the poor woman had such a load due to me. It's like, I don't know. And you guys taught me that, again, maybe my childhood wasn't the best that I wanted it to be, but that my mother really did the best that she could with what she had. And see, I do believe that. I do believe that. And you know, more than anything else, guys, I had to believe it. Because you see, as long as I hated my mother... There was no way in the world I was going to have a healthy relationship with any man or any woman. I couldn't because I kept seeing Rose's face everywhere. How could I? I mean, she got in the way of any healthy relationship I even thought to have. And so it was an imperative that I clean that one up. And I must tell you, too, I didn't go into that with the notion that we'd be friends. I just went into it because I couldn't carry that load myself. I needed to clean that up for me. That was part of my inventory. That was part of that blame. That was part of that victim stuff. And I knew I was going to never be free if I didn't clean it up. One of the special gifts has been that my mother is my biggest cheerleader today. And she is one of my best friends. And uh, that is a gift of Alcoholics Anonymous because that wasn't the way I planned it. I just wanted to be free from the pain of hating her. But today I love her so much. And she loves me. And I know she does. You know? But one of the real special things that came out of that fourth step was, was basically what I said before, that I was not a victim. And what happened with that was I realized that if my life was going to amount to anything, I had to do something with it. I had to be willing to do the footwork. I was two years at the time, and I was uneducated. I was a high school dropout because school wasn't important. Why should it be? I always had a man to take care of me. didn't have to go to school. And plus, I was a heroin addict, so I couldn't go to school. <laughs> it's interesting. I just want to throw this out. I, my 20th high school reunion is coming up uh, in the next few months. And last October, we had a, um, a pre-reunion reception, and it was fabulous. I went to the High School of Art and Design in New York, which is um, it was one of the most innovative schools at the time. And we were looking through the yearbook. And a lot of the people were dead. You know, we were going by and, and picking up people. Some died from the Vietnam War. A lot of them died from drug overdoses. And uh, a lot of them didn't think I was going to make it. And I understand that. You know, a lot of them didn't think I was going to make it. I'm grateful that I did a day at a time that you guys enabled me to show up and to get out of that hell that I lived in for so many, many years. Today I'm one of the survivors. But what I realized, again, as a result of this fourth, was that, um, again, if I wanted my life to be different, I had to make it different. And I started to pray for answers. I knew that I wanted to do more than just not drink. Now, not just forever. That was first and foremost, not to pick up a drug or a drink. Because, you see, if I was drinking and using, I couldn't get beyond the first step. So I had to first not pick up the drink or the drug. But then I realized I wanted something more, and I started to pray. And God put two women in my life. One was a woman in Vegas named Lynn S. And she had gone back to school. She was 30 years old. She'd gone back to school to do hotel administration. 
And the other woman was a woman I'm sure many of you are familiar with here in L.A., June G. June was uh, 21 years old and seven years sober when I met her, and she was going into UCLA Law School. And um, God put these two women in my life. And I just, I started going to classes with Lynn. I'd sit in on her classes, and I'd just kind of uh, audit them. And at the same time, what was happening was that I was really uncomfortable. (laughs) I was really uncomfortable with, with being so uneducated. I was one of those malcontents. And when they'd give me the traditions in Alcoholics Anonymous to read, I'd storm out of the room because I was too ashamed to tell you guys I couldn't read. I was too ashamed to ask you to help me pronounce the word anonymity as an example. I was so ashamed and so full of pride that I didn't ask your help. And so I just kind of went through this stuff by myself. But I kept praying for answers and God put these women there. And at the same time, Louise would say, if you want to know what some of these words mean, get a dictionary next to you. And so I had a dictionary as I used to read the books and I was sitting in classes with Lynn and all of this stuff together started making me think. Maybe I could go back to school. Now, I made a decision to pursue a career that was going to require eight years of a commitment, at least. And I don't even know how I thought of something like that. I mean, again, I came from the other side of the tracks, and uh, I didn't have a high school diploma, so who even gave me the... Who, how did I get the audacity to just dream? To dream. You guys gave me that. Most people in Vegas thought I was crazy. They said, you want to be what? You don't even have a high school diploma. You're 28 years old. What do you want to do? And Louise and a man named Dick T said, you know, honey, you can do anything you want to do if you become willing to do the footwork. That if you become willing to take the action, the sky is the limit. It doesn't matter where you came from. It doesn't matter what you have or you don't have. The only thing that will prevent you from doing anything is what's up here. The mask between your ears. And if you think you can't, you won't. And so I went and bought a GED book, and I used to hide it underneath the bed because I was so ashamed, because I had lied a lot, you know. I, <laughs> I told people that I had had a year of college, and probably they didn't believe me. Most of them probably didn't, and I guess they just used to say, one day if she keeps coming back, she'll make an amend. <laughs> and I was able to make an amend last Thanksgiving. I spoke at their conference in Vegas, and I was able to say, I'm sorry. <laughs> But I'd I'd study the book, though, because you guys taught me to do the footwork. You taught me it wasn't enough to just want to do something, but I had to be willing to do the work to make it different, no matter what was going on. And I went back to college. I started UNLV. I worked, and I went to school. And I went to meetings of Alcoholics Anonymous every single day. And I might add, I'm in my 12th year, and I go to meetings every single day in Alcoholics Anonymous. I can count how many days I have not been to a meeting in the years I've been sober. And I'm going to tell you, I stress that because I've seen it. I've seen it all too often where new people come in around 2, 3, and 4 especially. They start to flex their AA muscles. They go back to school. They have the right job, the right relationship. Or they're just too busy, you know, just too busy to go to meetings. And perhaps they haven't seen enough people die in this program. Maybe that's it. See, I have. And so Louise just constantly stressed, you can do all this stuff now, but don't forget where the source is. So I went to meetings every day and I studied. And then in 1982, I moved back to New York and I put myself through college. I worked full time and I went to school full time every day. Sixteen credits I carried and I don't know how the hell I did it, but you guys gave me the strength. And I went to meetings and I studied and I sponsored women. I was real active in service as I still am today. I did all the, everything. I did everything except have a relationship which was a choice that I made because, number one, I needed to work on my insides. I needed to become my own best friend so that eventually I could choose a healthy mate. But more than that, I would have never gotten through school had I, had I gotten involved because, see, my pattern was always to give deference to the men, always. And a day at a time, because I made this commitment to, to, to myself, really, I was able to show up and do it. And... Uh, I finished college in 86, and in 1986, I moved down to Washington, D.C. As a matter of fact, when Dorothy was moving back out here, we were just passing one another. And I uh, went there to complete my education. And in 1989 of May, I graduated from one of the top law schools in this country. (laughs) 
That is indeed your victory. You guys pull me up out of the gutter. A drunken whore who used to pay lawyers a lot of money to keep her out of jail. You guys gave me a day at a time whatever it took to be the woman that I wanted to be. And it, it's not over yet. You know, it's not going to be over until I'm gone. But you taught me that I could be anybody I wanted to be. That if I really did want to be somebody, I could be somebody. But that it wasn't only that outside stuff, it was the inside stuff. See, it was the inside stuff that enabled me to go forward and get those other things that I wanted to have. And it started with that fourth step. In my fifth step, it was... Well, the most important thing that came out of my fifth step for me was trust. Trust, forgiveness, and humility. I was a woman that, like I'm sure some of you, I always hated women. I always hated women. And I'm sure a lot of it had to do with the upbringing. You know, you open up a newspaper or a magazine and you see these five foot ten blonde-haired, blue-eyed women. They're about 110 pounds. And we all aspire to look like that. Or they could be black. It doesn't matter. But they're all the ideal. And so I grew up thinking that I, if I didn't look like that, I wasn't good enough. And so any woman that was prettier or smarter or classier or anything, I hated her. And I felt like that when I came into the rooms. If there was a woman up here speaking who looked too good and talked too well and had any kind of recovery, look out. You know? I just wanted to slice her up. But you know what I found out, guys? It wasn't that I hated you so much. It's that I hated myself. You taught me that it wasn't about you. It was about me. And I wanted so desperately what you had. I really wanted to be the kind of woman that cared about herself, that treated herself with respect. But instead of asking for help, I would be jealous and resentful of those that were doing it. It was easier to say, oh, who does she think she is? Miss AA? You know? And you know, it's very interesting. That's come around. I've had to uh, contend with a lot of that myself today. You know what I can tell? I know how some people look at me. And you know, instead of being angry at them, I just say, but for the grace of God, because I was there. I was one of those women that used to look, the way they look at me sometimes, I used to look at other women that way. And I have to just pray that if they keep coming around a day at a time, perhaps the attitude about themselves will change, which will mean that the attitude about other women will change. Today, I love you guys. Today, women are my best friends. And I'm proud to be a, a black woman recovering in an Alcoholics Anonymous. And you know... Is that water? And when I'm uh, around beautiful women, it just really lights me up. You know, I like women that are that are dynamic. It makes me feel very proud that I'm in that that class of sisters. Thank you. I'm one of those people that thought steps. Oh, the fifth one to, to finish that. Uh, trust was something that was vitally important because I did hate women so much. And so to do my fifth step with Louise was just, it was scary, but it was fabulous. Because in sharing with this woman who I was, and letting her see me naked, and letting her see me for all of my, my character flaws, everything, I started to trust her. Because a day at a time she showed me she wouldn't hurt me. And we've developed a relationship over the years that has um, surpassed no other, other than the one I have with God today. I'm one of those people that thought steps six and seven didn't really belong there, and I thought that I thought they were innocuous. I thought that Bill W. had nothing else to stick in those spaces, so he just put in six and seven. And uh, it was probably that attitude that kept me sick in this program for the first two years, um, for a long time. I have come to realize today that six and seven are the foundation. They've got to be. They're right up there with one, two, and three, and all of them are, though. Every step is important, and every step is important for its own reason. But I'm one of those people, and I was taught by Louise that, um, and this is my own opinion, I believe I, I took one fourth step. Louise taught me that there are steps one through three that come before four and five, and it was important that I tried to work those to the best of my ability so that I was ready to do a fourth step, a fearless moral inventory. But after four and five, she said the world didn't end. She said there were six and seven and eight and nine and all the others. And she said it wasn't enough just to illuminate the problem. She said the first step only brings it out. The fifth step means you share it with someone else. 
But then you do the work. You ask God to help you remove those things that were getting in your way. You don't just sit on them. She said, you have to constantly work at this thing. She said, if you don't like the fact that you're cursing all the time, you ask God to help you not to do that. You don't like the fact that you're so prideful and so mindful or, or less mindful of other people, then you ask God to help you with those things. If you're full of fear, then you ask God to help you walk through that fear. That's six and seven. A day at a time, I, I continually try to put that stuff in my life because it gets harder sometimes. The longer you're sober because you have so many benefits. The eighth step was harder for me than the ninth step because it was being honest enough to write the list down. See, when I finally got to nine, I could make the amend. It was being honest enough to acknowledge who needed to be on that list. My mother was the first person. Uh, but there were other people, and I was not on that list. That's for me. I was taught that I made amends to myself in one through seven, and then as, as I continued to work this program, I would constantly be making amends to myself. But eight and nine, and in the book it says it. That's why Louise always taught me, before you ever attempt to do a step, read it. She said, what you get in the meetings are people's opinions. And that was important to hear, to hear how other people interpreted these steps. But she said, indeed, they were people's opinions. She said, if you want to know how Bill W. wants or suggested it, you read the books. And in the, in the eighth step, in the very beginning, it says it's about personal relationships. It, talk, it says it right there. And uh, I had to clean a lot of them up. I might add that uh, it wasn't always like I thought it should be. Um, one of them uh, did not respond as I wanted him to respond. And I add this only because I've heard so many people talk about how I'm afraid to do it because it won't turn out like I wanted it to. And you know, guys, sometimes it won't. They didn't promise us that. They said that steps eight and nine were to clean up our side of the street. That's all. So that we could live more comfortably in a world that we tried to run away from. And this man who I had gone out with years before, I called him up on the phone and he hung up on me. He just didn't want to talk. He had nothing to say to me. And I have to tell you that when I did that, it was okay. I was a little hurt. I'm not going to deny that. But it was okay because by the time I became willing to make amends to him, I was ready. I was ready. The tenth step for me is um, a constant inventory. That's why I only did one-fourth. Because I do that inventory in my tenth constantly. And if I'm constantly on the beam... I'm going to be okay. When I get off the beam, that's what the 10th step helps me. It helps me to stay on, and when I get off, it helps me to get back on. But it's more important to me as time goes by because it enables me to, to get out of that victim role, to stay and keep the focus on me, which is where it belongs. Not on you guys, but on me. And the 11th step for me has become just one of the most important. I came in with no belief in a power greater than myself. I uh, grew up with the God of my childhood as the God of hellfire and brimstone. I was uh, raised in a family of Southern Baptists, and um, I hated God. You know, I knew that there was a God. I was agnostic. I knew that there was a God that existed, but not for me, for you guys. See, my idea of God was punishing. It was this old man atop a mountain with a long beard mandating what I should be doing. <coughs> that wasn't what I wanted to hear when I got sober. And Louise kept saying, act as if. Act as if. She said, in the morning, just ask not to drink, not to use drugs, and in your case, Francie, not to compromise yourself as a woman. And she said, if you found at night you did that, she said, just say thank you for not drinking, for not using drugs, and not compromising yourself. And that's how my prayer started, very simply, just asking for help and saying thank you when I got it. And on page 86 of the Big Book of Alcoholics Anonymous, there, there are two prayers. One is upon awakening and the other is upon retiring. And she had me read those every single day. And I just read them. And you know, guys, one day I found I wasn't acting as if anymore. One day I honestly started to believe in a power greater than myself. And today I'm one of those people that the 11th step talked about, that I would no more do without my faith than I would air, water, or sunshine. For me, it's that faith that's enabled me a day at a time to not pick up a drink for almost 12 years. It's that faith that's allowed me a day at a time to, be, to put myself through school when I didn't want to do it half the time because it was too hard. It's that faith that has allowed me to become a lady and a woman in the true sense of the word. It's that faith that has allowed me to work through fears that I never thought I could work through. Ever. It's that faith that's enabled me to be the woman that I love and respect today. An active participant in the creation of my own life. 
It's that faith that's made that possible. In the 12th step, I used to think that it only meant you go into a bar and drag some poor drunk off a bar stool, and uh, that was the way you did 12-step work. Come to realize that it's not just about that. Uh, 12-step work for me is a lot of things. The 12-step has many parts, but in terms of service, it's anything from showing up to a meeting, being present, which is why I go to meetings, because newcomers need to know that stuff works. It's anything to a smile in a meeting. If you see a stranger that you don't recognize going over saying, Hi, my name is so-and-so. It's doing the coffee. It's cleaning up the chairs. It's preparing the chairs. It's being secretary. It's doing all kinds of stuff. There's all kinds of service I learned how to do in Alcoholics Anonymous. Right now, I take two meetings in New York into rehab facilities. One is Covenant House, which is a child's facility for children under 21. And... Uh, it's really important that I do that one because it brings back a lot of memories for me. These are kids that grew up on the streets of New York that didn't have a clue, just like I didn't. And perhaps by showing up a day at a time, I can give them some kind of hope. And I go into a detox. That's the service I like to do. I sponsor women. You know, I do a lot of things today. But the 12th step was even more than that. It was about practicing these principles in all my affairs. And I didn't understand that part because, again, I didn't want to do the work. But it's about practicing these principles. It's not just about sitting up here talking about Alcoholics Anonymous. It's not just about mouthing some words of truth. It's not just about talking about the stuff that we talk about in a controlled setting. See, Alcoholics Anonymous does work in a controlled setting. I can guarantee you that. It works in the meetings. But what you guys taught me is it works out there when I work it. And that's where I really had to take it. I had to take it into my job. And today I am a better employee. I had to take it into my home. And I am a better daughter. I had to take it into all of my personal relationships. All of them. I had to take it on the subway. I had to take it on the streets. Sometimes people walk into me and bump into me and I want to immediately be real nasty and pissed off. Well, sometimes I have to contain myself and not do that. That's what the 12th step talks about. Practicing these principles in all my affairs. Not only when it's convenient or when it's easy, but it's all the time. I just want to share before I end that... um. This has been the most unbelievable journey for me. Unbelievable. And as I started out, I end with telling those of you especially that are new that you can't even imagine what's in store for you today. You can't even imagine. I am so different from the person that called into Alcoholics Anonymous in June of ninth, in July of 1979. It just, it blows me away. Sometimes I pinch myself because I don't believe that I'm real, you know? It's like I honestly don't believe that I am this woman. There was a time in my life, and I've only come to understand this recently, people judged me by my actions, and I judged myself by my intentions. Always. I always wanted to be a better person, but my behavior was despicable. And that's in and out of this program. And on a day-to-day basis, I try to have my behavior and my intentions aligned with one another. I've gained courage in Alcoholics Anonymous. Um, I had to sit for the New York bar three times. And um, when I sat for that exam the first time, it was tough. And I thought I was going to pass it because I sat for it on my 10th anniversary. I had to sit for it a second time and I just, I didn't have the strength, but I did it. The third time, you guys literally carried me. You literally carried me. And I say that because so often we take on challenges and we don't want to do it because it's too hard and we think we'll fail. And you know what? You might fail, but you'll never know unless you try it. And um, you guys have just given me the strength on a day-to-day basis to keep showing up for myself. I was admitted to the, to the New York bar two days before my 38th birthday, and I'm about to sit for your bar this summer. And um, <laughs> I hope I don't have to sit for another test. But I'm doing this one by choice. This one's by choice. Um, I am so grateful to be sober and Alcoholics Anonymous. And in ending, I'd like to read something from AA-approved literature for those of you that are AA purists. <laughs> it's As Bill Sees It, and it is my most favorite book, as you can probably tell. Uh, we have a treasure trove of information in this program. The literature is unbelievable, guys. And if you haven't picked it up, I just encourage you to start reading our books. Alcoholics Anonymous is where the answers are. I can tell you that because they brought me up from the gutter and I'm not in the gutter today. But you've got to be willing to do the work. 
You've got to be willing to do the work. We all have the same tools. There's nothing magical about this program. I don't have anything different than you have. Same 12 steps, same 12 traditions, same 12 concepts, same slogans, same books. This is entitled, Can We Choose? And it's on page four. We must never be blinded by the feudal philosophy that we are just the hapless victims of our inheritance, of our life experience, and of our surroundings. That these are the sole forces that make our decisions for us. This is not the road to freedom. We have to believe that we can really choose. You've given me the gift of choice. You taught me that it doesn't matter where I've come from. It doesn't matter what my religion is or is not. It doesn't matter what kind of past I had. It doesn't matter whether I'm educated or not. It only matters where I'm going. And you guys have given me the gift of choice. You've allowed me to dare to dream. And more importantly, you've given me the tools to make those dreams come to reality. Thank you.